everyone to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. I'm Finn Arne Jorgensen. And we're happy to have today Ben Anderson, who's lecturer in 20th Century European History at Keele University in the UK. And he is going to be discussing his book, Cities, Mountains, and Being Modern in Fin de Siècle, England and Germany, which came out with Palgrave in 2020. So Ben, we'll give it over to you to hear about the book. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me. Um, it's a real delight to get a chance to talk about this publication. It feels quite a long time ago now that I uh, that I published it. Um, now, I've, I've, I've got back in my office and I've forgotten to bring a copy of the book with me. But what I can do is um, I'm going to uh, share a picture of the title the uh, page just briefly so there you go that's what it looks like um and i do actually write about the the hut on the front here so um so hopefully um that'll give you an idea of the sort of thing that we're looking at but i'll stop sharing now in any case so uh this book really um emerged in many ways so i would stop sharing anyway okay uh, so this book really emerged in many ways from um a question i asked uh, at a, at a, in a module on urban history back in sort of 2001-ish when I was finishing off my, my undergraduate. Um, and it was really about the ways in which uh, historians at the time seemed to kind of assume that when people left the city and went out into the countryside for leisure purposes, they just sort of stopped being urban people um, and became um, something else. And in many ways, this is kind of, that kind of question has become a you know a kind of a crux of what what I want to uh, what, I've, what I've been aiming to research here and at, at its heart is this paradox that we go into the countryside to escape the city um, and modernity or at least that's sort of how it's often understood uh, to get away from it all and that often means escaping things like commercialism and complexity and technological uh, dependence uh, but then when we go there, we don the latest in waterproof fabrics or we, you know, we lace up our thick boots, we apply sun cream, uh, take a map or a compass or a GPS, uh, wear a lightweight rucksack and take a, all manner of uh, gadgets with us. And then we undertake activities that actually very rarely have anything to do uh, with the reality of life in rural places and are instead defined by a whole load of images, experiences, aesthetics, technologies uh, that are actually already pre-rehearsed uh, before we even leave our urban habitats. So in many ways, my book is an attempt, it's kind of an early attempt to kind of try and understand where that, that apparent paradox comes from. Um, and for that, it, it, in, in the, I needed to chart the emergence of mass outdoors leisure in the decades before World War I. And I pretty quickly found myself kind of wrapped up in a whole series of agonizing debates that many people are probably familiar with. Um, and performances and political claims amongst, um, in my case, mountaineers, walkers and skier skiers um, about, about what it meant to be modern, about a modern ontology, um, hence the title of the book. Um, and this has also been developed through um, the urban historians, Simon Gunn and Mike Umbach, who I kind of need to give a shout out to, um, who examined my PhD and asked me very memorably to explain at that time what it meant to be modern. Um, and I didn't give a very good answer at that point. Um, so this book is also basically an attempt at, at a kind of a twofold answer to that question. Um, and it argues that, so first that being anti-modern um, 
or at least being sceptical about modernity, was actually an essential part of what it meant to be modern. Uh, the outdoors leisure enthusiasts were actually almost always on board with the notion of progress and were pretty clearly future orientated. It's just that they were sceptical that contemporary modernity or urban life could provide the progress which it claimed to offer. And um, so they, uh, they understood modern life, they understood the city as a, as a problem that required a solution. Um, and that in itself was an aspect of uh, their claim to be modern. And second, the book argues that the countryside, and especially up in upland areas like mountains and moorlands, uh, provides a site in which these urban identifying mountaineers and ramblers, um, as well as any other no, num other number of urban actors, um, state authorities, entrepreneurs and so on, played out debates around this slippery and contested category of modern. And the book basically discusses um, how all of that happened. Uh, but it's also, you'll be kind of relieved to know, um, in many ways, an environmental history. Um, and like, like many other texts, no claim to originality here, um, it seeks to understand those debates as emerging through human engagements, or perhaps you might say entanglements with their environments. So it charts, for example, have elite, elite mountaineers and then elite female mountaineers and then mountain guides uh, performed out new practices of risk in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, by intentionally putting themselves at the mercy of the agency-filled, uh, chaotic, unpredictable uh, mountain landscapes through which they moved. Um, but it also shows how that engagement emerged from a new, a, a new conceptualization of risk in the city um, as workplace insurance legislation, astonishingly, moved responsibility for safety from individual workers to a new technocracy of insurance brokers, risk analysts, and statisticians. And that sort of approach, where I was consistently thinking about um, what the practice in the countryside might have meant for people in their urban lives, tended to raise questions about how we often tend to conceptualize uh, these forms of entanglement in the countryside and in the city in fundamentally different ways. So we use different words to describe them even. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that the book is necessarily very consistent here, but I do think that several chapters make the case that we need to understand the city perhaps um, as a set of human ecologies, um, which we can understand as being exported to the countryside as outdoors leisure. And that's perhaps most apparent in a chapter on what I've called the construction of an alpine landscape. Uh, which argues that the vast Hutton Path network, which was established in the Eastern Alps in the space of a couple of decades at the end of the 19th century, um, and the hut on the cover is, is one of these huts, um, that that network inscribed a, a kind of an aesthetic and performance of the Alps, which we can actually find first um, in the museums and art galleries of German towns and cities in the mid 19th century. The book also charts the resistance of local people to the reduction of their local landscape livelihoods and too often both culture and even their poverty um, to urban projects. Um, and in so, in so doing, it seeks to challenge the self-proclaimed control of urban elites over tourism in these landscapes and demonstrates the agency of local people who often built the infrastructure, manned the huts, and almost always had to grant permission um, for, um, for construction work in the mountains. And that might be local communities resisting or indeed enforcing investment from urban elites in the mountain landscape. Um, it includes newly enfranchised mountain guides um, insisting on their own modernity in the 1900s 
um, and wily locals taking advantage of assumptions of national belonging to extract money, investment or concessions um, from all of the different various sides. So as you can tell, what has really emerged from all of that is a, is a welter of different themes as groups with different politics and backgrounds sought to position themselves as the sort of harbingers of progress and modernity in the mountains. And to try and to organise all of that was actually a bit of a nightmare um, and made a straightforward chronological account um, you know, really difficult, um, I would probably say impossible. So instead, once I established the core argument of the first two chapters that seek to understand outdoors leisure in an urban context, uh, the book tells a series of thematic stories that most of which have a transnational perspective. Um, so as well as that story about huts and pars and east and outs that I've just outlined, um, this book is also provides histories of the mountains and moorlands that are rooted in things like uh, the performances of time, uh, risk, um, internationalism and domesticity, for example. So that's kind of the book as a whole. But what I'd like to do now is just to um, read a short extract um, from the conclusion to the book. Um, and I, I'm, I'm kind of doing this slightly on purpose because I'm aware that um, since the book has kind of been released as a series of chapters, um, uh, there's a good chance that no one's actually going to end up reading the conclusion. <laughs> so, so, and it's a story that I feel, kind of feel is worth telling. So I'm, I'm going to tell it now. Um, so on the 2nd of July, 1936, two German climbers, Hans Teufel and Heine Sedelmeier, found themselves at the foot of Triffen, a mountain in North Wales. Uh, John R. Jenkins, their host and an impressive climber in his own right, pointed Teufel at the last remaining unclimbed section of the cliff and egged him on. Teufel obliged, creating a route known as Munich Climb and a founding myth of the British climbing ethic, a long-standing refusal to use artificial aid or fixed equipment on rock climbing routes. In order to protect himself, Teufel hammered three pitons into a cliff, leaving one in place complete with carabiner. So these are pegs that mountaineers hammer into cliffs to keep them safe and the carabiners are the cliffs that they clip themselves on with. Probably the Germans thought little of it. On the previous day, they had climbed a route that already featured one piton and had added another. Indeed, Jenkins had hoped that the Germans would resort to what he calls ironmongery sooner on the trip. A socialist and pacifist Quaker, whose father was educated in Germany and who retained contacts with anti-Semitic German climbing elites, he had likely hoped for a rapprochement at a time when deadly German attempts on Alpine North faces inspired in British climbers equal measures of awe and horror. A week later, Jenkins pointed out the new route to John Menlove Edwards, who was camped in the valley below. Edwards was a devout Christian poet and psychiatric student with unconventional ideas about a unified theory of the mind and an uncompromising climbing philosophy based on progress in mental resilience rather than technology. Standards of nerves would go up so that we could go on much longer. Wilfred Noyce quoted him as claiming when they first met in 1935. Nailed boots, purity, no pitons, was Edward's own summary. Yet there was more subtext here, because by 1936, Edwards, Edwards was in love with the 17-year-old Noyce, and with a depth of feeling that later contributed to his suicide. The Munich climb pitons were an affront to Edward's climbing philosophy and Anglo-Welsh pride, but also a threat to his reputation with his new lover. Edwards, both psychiatrist and author of sexually symbolic landscape poetry, 
was surely also alive to the symbolism of removing a piton from a crack, particularly when done as it was with a poker. If, as his biographer Jim Perrin suggests, Edward saw in the rock a mirror for himself, then the removal of the piton restored his own purity as well as that of the mountain. In the frighteningly anti-queer world of the 1930s, such a narrative could hardly be made public, but if Jenkins hoped for greater friendship and understanding, he too was disappointed. Munich Klein became a byword for differing ideas of progress and that second nature, as Noyce would put it, of Germans. According to Jenkins, British mountaineers retained a robust negative attitude we hated the emergence of competitive nationalism in our supranationalistic sport. We abhorred this deliberate dicing with death where mature mountaineering judgment would sound a retreat. We vehemently disapproved of ironmongery and pulley-hawley tactics. While class antagonisms had underscored similar debates in Austria before 1914, ironmongery now became synonymous with fascism and anti-democratic unfairness but its modernity was undeniable nonetheless. The actual process of climbing, Jenkins concluded in 1942, is symbolic of man's conscious effort for upward progress. The debate still turned on what it meant to be modern. Despite the impact of two world wars and the notoriously anti-Semitic world of interwar German alpinism, the mountains still provided a site in which the contents of progress could be expressed and their contests played out. To chart the changing definitions of modernity in mountains and uplands means understanding how the changing contents of modern were not just discussed through language, but enacted and developed through an effective relationship to the landscape itself. As Jenkins' conclusion suggests, moving through mountain terrain could be understood as a kinetic metaphor for progress, and its contents mirrored what contemporaries understood as the requirements of a modern individual. Bodies took part in the contests of the modern. They were, after all, the objects of improvement and often the means of measuring one's status as a modern individual. So the book examines the meanings of being modern during a period that saw the emergence of mass organized extra urban leisure. And when new critiques of the urban condition put the notion of cultural progress under significant pressure. Yet if anything, the role of the mountains and uplands in modern identities became even more significant during the rest of the 20th century. Every form of mountaineering, from Himalayan climbing to the purity of short routes on small boulders, has developed its own sense of modern movement and achievement. And mountain biking, skiing, hang gliding, base jumping, green laning, motocross, canoeing, caving, fell and sky running or surfing have all inscribed new patterns of activity onto rural landscapes and participants have moulded rural places to suit their needs. National parks have played an important role in sustaining fragile ecologies to be sure, but they've also managed places like the Lake District as static landscapes for the benefit of urban visitors rather than locals or wildlife. Rural places have continued to be sites that serve the needs of the city. They are places for power stations, reservoirs, power cables and landfills imposed on local communities and ecologies that have not always stood to benefit. The consequences of countryside tourism were not restricted to urban histories of escapism or state histories of nationalism. Their impacts on rural places themselves have defined European landscapes and their people, as well as the environments in which we still live. And I'll leave it there. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, this is, uh, as always, really fascinating material. As you know, we've, well, wandered in the same uh, academic landscapes for a while doing 
uh, research on similar topics. We've been in conference sessions together back when we used to travel to conferences. Those were the days. Um, so there's there's certainly plenty of things uh, that we could talk about. And I'm wondering if, yeah, Micah had a question. Should we do hers first since she has to run early? Actually, I have a couple too, but so she was wondering about the relationship between alpinism and colonialism. So because that's come up in, in local climate communities, route naming ethics all over the world uh, and relates to, you know, the things you've been talking about with purity, second nature and so on. So maybe you could say a few words about that. Yes. Yeah, so um, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely central. So basically the, a lot of the ways in which I think about the modern are in themselves drawn from um, recent kind of understandings and theories of modernity drawn from imperial scholars like that's what i'm doing i'm, I'm incorporating those ideas into um, an analysis of european sort of walking and mountaineering um, but walkers and mountaineers were also um, involved in imperial projects and they're not they, these aren't just himalayan mountaineering adventures so those are the ones that we kind of know about but um, we can think of, for example, Francis' young husband, um, who led uh, a massacre of about 5,000 people in uh, Tibet. Um, he was a mountaineer and he was engaged in mountaineering. Uh, mountaineers like Paul Gusfeldt uh, was important in the establishment of colonies in German East Africa. If we're looking at ramblers, so the, one of the organisations to look at is called the Cooperative Holidays Association, which is a Christian socialist, not, not like the Austrian Christian socialists, like the British Christian socialists organization um, near Manchester. Um, and and whole, uh, in part because it's a Christian organization, um, a large number of their members um, go overseas to do missionary work and work in the colonies. Uh, Jeanne Imink, um, born in Holland, spends time in South Africa uh, with her first husband before meeting her. Um, meeting a, her British army lover who then goes to India with her. She falls pregnant um, and then moves to Switzerland and becomes one of the leading female mountaineers of her generation, um, living on the stipend this British military provided by this British military officer. And um, is a great example of exactly how incorporated mountaineers are and were, uh, well, were and are, I think, still in the, in the colonial project. So they, their understanding of what it means to be modern isn't you know, isn't isn't it, it isn't at all separate from the colonial project, and I think the ways in which they understand the rural landscape, they're not exactly the same. I'm not suggesting that there's a. I don't. I don't think it's quite right to say that this is a, these are forms of internal colonization. Although I think I come quite close to claiming that at times, um, uh, because there are clear differences, because these communities are often valorized. But it's in it's it's in the valorization of these rural communities that the that this power relationship often. Um, often stands. So in a sense, it, it doesn't matter um, whether a community is understood in a positive or a negative light, if it is characterised and uh, defined as being backward, that in and of itself implies a power dynamic and a power relationship between the definer and the defined. Um, and actually that form of definition occurs over and over again in both uh, in, in, in a lot of the outdoors leisure literature that we can find in the late 19th and early 20th century, whether it's Christian socialists in Britain visiting Ireland, where there's a clear difference between how they treat Protestants and how they treat Catholics, um, whether it's um, uh, whether it's German mountaineers going into the um, going into the Alps and then complaining about how uh, local villagers are becoming more wealthy, you know that it, it's you know it, 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 that same kind of process is 
occurs again and again. And it's an extremely similar process to the, the same, the, the, the ways in which the concept of Mosin is mobilized um, for imperial um, uh, 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 purposes and projects um, in the rest of the world. So a great question. Yeah, here a question from Gabriella. Hi, thanks so much. It's a super interesting topic and I can't wait to read the book. I have a question and it's something that kind of came up in our little writing group through the greenhouse last week. And it's the struggle to understand rural urban and rural mm -hmm. urban as this dichotomy because one of the things that came up that we're sort of talking through and I deal with my own work is, you know, often when we think about rural, we think about agricultural systems, right? So, so and, and in Micah's paper, we talked about, she talked about this idea of a resource town as sort of this middling. And I'm wondering, and she's dealing with like the wild, the arboreal forest in some of her work. And so, you know, there's becomes this, how do we name these things to not create a dichotomy? Because I think is what you're talking about is these spaces are much more complex. And I, I, I hear you talking about who gets the definitional terms. And so I'm just kind of wondering on your take and other spaces and other ways that are productive sort of methodologically and theoretically to broaden these categories, but so that they have meaning and that it's not so binary. Mm. So I think, I mean, it's a great question and it's a really, I agree, it's a really, it's a really tricky one because of course the boundaries aren't complete. And, and the other thing I would say is that there's a whole bunch of people in the, um, amongst the groups that I've been talking about who absolutely don't live in the city, but still characterise themselves as urban citizens, right? So this is, I think there's a, there's a big element of this as being about how, how people self-define themselves um, and understand themselves as being associated with a particular urban community, where they may well work or where they may uh, constitute their leisure. Um, I mean, one of the ways in which I, I'd understand a lot of these rambling and, and mountaineering, I mean, is because they're, they're effectively, they're, they're urban clubs. Right. If they weren't doing mambling and mountaineering, they would just be standard urban clubs and they would be existing in urban clubland. And that's what they do a lot of the time. They keep having meetings in clubs just as, you know, that your, I don't know, your, your art gallery club or um, statisticians and, and so on will, you know, will have meetings in, in urban clubland in the late 19th, and early 20th centuries. And in many ways, they're not any different to that. Their, their aim in some ways, for some of the organisations, not all, but for, for some of the organisations, their aim is to actually incorporate rambling and mountaineering into urban club culture rather than um, get urban people out into the, mount into the mountains. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, this, but, but to speak to your kind of wider point, so, so I suppose the part, a part of the solution is that actually a lot of this is about self-definition and what, what defines these people as urban uh, is, um, is how they think about themselves and how they problematize their own lives as being urban, right? So it's a problem that, that's about them and it's about them and their relationship to the city. So that's kind of a part of the answer. But of course, there is this other, other issue that actually a lot of the ways in which I'm thinking about this is, is much more much more material and about, and about genuine kind of material differences between um, urban places and rural places. And yeah, it's not, it's not that straightforward, but it, is, but it is the case that the Alps come to be um, presented and represented in very specific ways in urban centres across Europe, um, in, in many ways, 
before they are actually is actually possible to experience in them in those ways. So um, landscape reliefs proliferate across Europe in the sort of 1870s, 1880s. Um, panoramas of Mount Alpine landscapes, or but they but they all present, present a very benign version of the Alpine environment in which there's no weather and there's no fog um, and there's nothing's falling off. It's also a very static environment. And in many ways, that's the environment that then, that's then written onto the Alps through through huts and paths. And so it does seem to be me to be a, more of a genuine relationship between the two. I think though methodologically and, you know, kind of conceptually, it's a challenge for us not to think about these two spaces as, as kind of essentially or intrinsically different, right? That, I mean, it, it just it just makes no sense because there's still all places in the world. And so whatever methodology you, we're using to think about how people engage with rural landscapes, which is a place where we often think about, you know, sort of, you know, you could name anyone of sort of, you know, tarscapes and meshwork or, you know, what, what have you, sort of nature cults and so on. We're very used to applying that to, in quotes, rural or natural domains. Um, but there's no reason in principle why all of those things shouldn't be applied to rural, to urban places as well. Um, and in fact, if you're not, if you're only applying them to rural places and not urban places, then you've got a methodological problem. Um, I don't think I'm the first to kind of point this out. Um, I think David Harvey said Harvey said that New York is um, in, the, in the last analysis natural. Um, and that that's more or less where I'm coming from, right? That it, if you it, the city the city is is still a material construct in our lives, and so we need to deal with it in basically the same way. It, but I think the one of the ways in which I think about this is that um, I, I approach quite I've approached quite a lot of it through non-representational theory. And one of the problems with in non-representational theory is that you end up um, struggling to account for how um, how culture moves from one place to another because it's you, and and basically the answer the answer is represent, representations right but you can understand how representations move um, one set of ecologies if you like from one place um, into another because they're they're a transportation of a set of cultures that are kind of ingrained in our understandings of a particular particular site uh, we transform sites into the ways in which we expect them to be but that's already that's already created in our minds before we get there. Does that make sense? Um, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not, but I'm not going to pretend, you know, I'm not someone who can provide like big theoretical answers. I sometimes apply some theories that I've heard of. <laughs> I probably don't apply them very rigorously. Um, but uh, but that, that's, that's probably the closest I can come to helping to outline that approach. Good. We can try to be good historians and stay on the methodological questions instead, because that's what I want to ask about. Uh, so one of the things I, I recognize very well then from from my own research is the, the fact that what you are looking at, these people that you study, they are both using landscapes in like physical ways, but also enacting certain philosophies and they're mm. they're negotiating, arguing, etc. over them. Uh, but what this ultimately is, this, this in a way hybrid activity that's both using the landscape and enacting a philosophy is an experience. Mm -hmm. So it's a historical experience uh, that is, well, experienced by historical actors in a historical time. So the whole context around it also becomes uh, critical then. So the question is then, how, how are you going about to study this particular experience, you know, what kind of sources can you use? Uh, what kind of methods do you do 
because uh, I imagine there's a lot of like text uh, because so many of these people were prolific writers uh, and that's mm. an important part of it. But is there something that's lost? Can you capture like this experience through these, these texts then? Yeah, I mean, it's, so I think it's hard um, and you're right. There's that, so a lot of it, and there's, there's, there's always that um, contradiction that you're trying to access the, um, in a sense, the kind of the, I mean, it's a contradiction in non-obsessional theory, isn't it? That you're trying to access this relation, this ways in which people are using the landscape through texts, which are actually written in, um, written in the city. So this is one of this is one of the things that I, you know, I, I, I conveniently forgot about. I suppose is probably the char most charitable way to say it. Um, is that actually, you know, if I was to do this really rigorously, I would have to be saying, well, actually. All of these texts aren't products of the mountains at all. They're products of the writing studio and they're products of someone sat behind a desk, probably with a candle and writing probably under a bit of pressure for editorial purposes. Um, and, and of course, there's a whole bunch of things in there which are fairly easy to think about, like the stress of and the need to be controversial to a certain extent, I think, in German culture in the late 19th century. And that certainly comes into it. Um, and yet, um, it seems to me that that, you know, to characterise all of this as just going on in the writing studio, it seems to be equally, you know, uh, you know, short of the mark, basically. Um, so I do, I mean, I, I don't think I would characterise it quite as experience. I, th I, I think, I think this, I, I think the landscape becomes, you could say it, it becomes a kind of a factory of meaning. So I think, I think, I think it's not so much experience, I think it's more active than that. I sense that I, I think that there are certain mountaineers who think through their ideas and philosophies um, through mountaineering. Um, I would go so far as to say as, as that. Um, and I think, you know, you could name a few examples. So um, the obvious one is Eugen Guido, Guido Lama, who, um, who, who understands mountaineering as this kind of kinetic um, enlightenment. So this kind of sense of freeing the individual from its yeah you know it's very all very Kantian to begin with and then and then later and then, then later kind of developed a kind of a Nietzschean approach um having kind of read and digested Nietzsche but then understood it I think through mountaineering so there's this sense in which mountaineering becomes a site in which ideas can be not just expressed but actually thought through um and there's a great um there's one of these articles that I continually pointed to because I keep I've got to read a couple of drafts but there's a great article that will come out at some point I'm sure by Jonathan Westaway on uh, ludic mountaineering in um, in in England uh, where he's looked at um, the, it's, Ma it's the Manchester Guardian leader writer basically uh, writing a series of kind of philosophically influenced ideas about what walking means and how you think through things while you're walking so some of this is definitely it, it seems to me that some of that that takes place um, I think I mean I'm, so I'm personally, and I, again, I'm a, I'm a historian who's who's not massively theoretically sophisticated, but I, I genuinely think that as a historian, you have a kind of responsibility to, as best as you can, imagine yourself into the situations that um, are being described. Um, I think uh, whether we like it or not, there's an imaginative impulse um, in history writing. In the end, we're writing stories. And so there is a an important role um, for the imagination and for historians, I think we can use this, we use the sources that we have in order to imaginatively try and place ourselves in the 
bodies and shoes of the people that we're describing. Um, and I think that I think it's an unavoidable process, but I also think it's a very positive one. Um, and and so and so to go back to those landscape release and panoramas, well, a, a big part of that is me imagining, okay, well, what what did people actually do when they walked around museums and art galleries where these things were displayed? Um, well, they're, they're walking around in a very specific set of um, a very with a very specific set of behaviours and bodily positions and, and 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 viewpoints and so on, and all of that is 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 evidenced in the sources, right? But it also requires me to have a certain level of imagination about how you do it. Does that again terrible answer in many ways? But I think that's probably the truthful one. Oh, that's great. Um, Gabriella made a, a comment in um, chat. She has an article in Journal of American History about the sensory history of taste and the historical imagination, yeah. which would be very similar, right? How how do you actually capture taste? You kind of have to imagine it based on what they wrote or how they describe something, right? How what they draw. Um, and so I was wondering. Uh, so this morning before this call, we were out on a trek. Um, we went out to one of the islands uh, about forty minutes, I guess, drive from here. Um, and it's one of the areas where there are trails um, that are marked then with every. So often you have a little stump um, in this case that's painted. Um, and so you know where they are and you look on the maps and there's different versions of the maps that mark these trails out. So I was wondering your historical interlocutors that you're, that you're looking at, um, how did they feel about the marking of trails as a phenomenon and it's, you know, making it accessible, making it modern in that way, but yet it would seem to be exactly contrary to this idea of conquering, you know, nature or, you know, rambling. I mean, the, the, the whole word rambling to ramble around, right, <laughs> to go randomly. Um, so how, how did they feel about this kind of marking of trails? Uh, oh man, uh, trail marking is enormously, as <laughs> they've opened a surprisingly complex issue here. Um, so, so, so the first, first off, there's, so there's a whole bunch of, there are, there are different political claims going on here, right? So there, there are a whole bunch of people who are really keen on building massive flat paths so that people can walk up them in ease and, um, you know, and then they stay in well-to-do huts and they and they have a nice dinner on a veranda and look at the mountains and that's what mountaineering is for them right and those aren't necessarily the same people who are keen on like creating waymarks uh, paths although in fact a lot of these paths are also waymarked <laughs> um so way but i think waymarking is in a sense a, con uh, a a conquest of these places um it i mean i noticeably this is something which is um not doesn't really exist in britain so we don't, we don't really have waymarks so this is very much that i have to look at the german side of what i'm talking about here um but in germany um and especially in the kind of the sutural um in fact what happens is that the the basically the alpine clubs um various other organizations come along and paint a load of stuff on rocks and put up signposts and put out waymarks um and then local farmers come around and blow them all up um, and rip them out and take them down. And, and then, no, they get really angry. Um, and, 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 and so then you think, well, okay, well, there's that, there's that going on. 
But then, the, you know, constantly through this period, huts are getting broken into, destroyed, uh, burnt down. And um, so there's actually enormous resistance um, that we can't really, it's really difficult to trace. There's very little written about this. What we really do is we just hear about all of this going on in the, in the you know, in the, in the pages of, you know, all of the Alpine organisations, whether they're socialists, whether they're, whether they're, you know, anti-Semitic or supportive of the Habsburg Empire and so on and so forth, all of them complain about these break-ins about, and about how uh, backward the locals are for doing all of this and, and, and so on and how it needs to be sorted out and how they need to learn to uh, treasure the, the waymarks which are being, being put up. So there's this, there's this huge kind of under, 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 underlying history of resistance to these processes of waymarking. Um, which I've not not really been able to get to the bottom of, um, at least in this book, but I'm hoping someone will at some point. Um, but which which suggests that those waymarks, at least in the in, in significant areas of the Eastern Alps, really were a part of conquest of the landscape. They really were an appropriation of of that site, an and an appropriation which locals really didn't like um, and were quite resistive to on occasion. So I think it. Um, it does match up with that, but it doesn't match up to necessarily because they could be they can be waymarked but not really nicely built. Is this is this stuff about um, you know creating nice landscapes and so on and so forth? So it's a slightly different category than that. Although I have to say, in the Eastern Alps in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties, um, you know the more paths I look at, the more I'm convinced that basically they were. The, bit, the paths they built at that time have since degraded. So I'm pretty sure the path network that's there now is significantly less good than the one that was built in the late, late, late 19th century. So in, in extension of that question then, um, a question about change over time, not in the landscape and the trails, but in the, the way people think about it. So uh, I don't remember exactly you said, you know, how long you follow your history. Uh, I know that in, in the Norwegian context, you have the same history then of you know, making nature accessible. I mean, that's really what it's about. You know, you have the whole discussion of mountains without handrails. I mean, in Norway, they definitely do a lot of, of the handrails. Uh, and they succeed. I mean, you have the trekking association, which becomes huge and, and influential. And they make, I mean, beginning of the 1900s, they really make uh, large parts of Norwegian nature very accessible. And then comes the car and also demands accessibility. And that's when they like take a step back. It's like, okay, now we're actually gone too far. So in a way they reassess this idea of, of accessibility and how nature is supposed to be used and with the coming of new technologies. Mm. Do you follow your story like, far enough into the 20th century to see something uh, similar or other developments? Um, so if I'm honest, no, <laughs> but, but I do know enough about it to speak. Um, the, I mean, the, the, key, the key one that I do follow is skiing. So the skiing, skiing does change the dynamic um, in important ways. Uh, there are better historians. I mean, Marcus Gross's work, for example, is great, Andrew Denning. Um, but skiing, skiing changes dynamic in important ways, except that it's except that in some ways it's also similar in the in the ways in which local people seem to be quite you know certain forms of local um, entrepreneurship are kind of cast out and um, and degraded as a result um, of the the the, the, um, the changes to skiing. But access is a really you know it's a really it's a really difficult issue because there are there are several different kind of 
aspects to it that aren't that don't necessarily cut into one another in easy ways. So there's the there's the basic kind of um, access stuff, which, as you know, Fernanda doing this work on trespass um, in Austria, um, and that you know in the eastern in the eastern Alpine context that gets that kind of gets more or less fixed at the end of the First World War because the, the nobility a kind of cease to exist to a certain extent and b also just give in um uh, and, and and so the, the, those kinds of access issues don't emerge but of course at the same at that very time from 1921 onwards um jewish people are effectively excluded from mountain landscapes and throughout all of this period there's a whole load of disability stuff like that um there is a there's a there's very clear um, ableism, for example, amongst the Cooperative Holidays Association, in which they have a separate holiday that's called the Cripples Holiday um, for uh, disabled people. Um, and it, they don't allow people who aren't, um, they don't even allow people who aren't fit on their holidays. So you have to be, you have to be fit and thin, basically. So there's a whole, you know, there's a whole set of, um, you know, history still to be written about about access, quite apart from the kind of formal access debate, which is actually which has kind of dominated a lot of the British historiography because there's such a big problem here. Um, so yeah, there's there, there are these various different multi, uh, sort of multivalent aspects, um, and of course there's the there's also the um, fact in various different countries and to various different extents that uh, the countryside has come to be defined in one way or another as a white place um, and so access for non-white groups to under, undertake um, activities that aren't middle-class hiking um, predominantly um, it, you know is limited um, and, and there are you know once you get to the point where you start thinking about so I have done a bit of research about mountain biking uh, there's a big there's big controversy in the Lake District about green laning currently um, there is this sense in which um, these areas are understood as the, in a sense, the kind of the cultural property of a very specific group, which is basically the group I'm, I'm analysing. It's basically rambles and mountaineers, and any other form of activity that takes place in these these areas is understood as in many ways as a as a threat, and it's often characterised as an environmental threat because it's noise pollution or it's erosion, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and often these communities don't seem to be fully aware that they've already caused quite a lot of change to these landscapes themselves. So there's, you know, that it, it does become increasingly more fraught as it as it goes on during the 20th century. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd be interested to understand what the role of role of um, local inhabitants is in that, because I, I do feel like the the there there will be a subtle change at some point in Britain at least, at least because the period in which I'm talking about both people who live in the Alps and people who live in the rural landscape in Britain are very poor, even, even in comparison to poor people in cities, they're very poor. Um, and so, that, and they don't have a lot of power. A lot of them don't have the vote. A lot of them uh, don't really have any, a lot of them are in debt to, um, you know, to urban, um, often to no, the nobility or, or, the, or the church and so on. So, it, you know, it, it, it's a complex situation. And so the power, the power dynamic there is, um, is such that, um, that the, the, the often local people are described as backward and, and poor. But obviously by the late 20th century, that dynamic shifts quite significantly, right? So the, the, uh, basically rural areas in the UK are now significantly wealthier than urban ones. And so the, that, that power dynamic, I think, probably doesn't work in quite the same way. So during COVID-19, there's been an awful lot of concern, which is, I mean, 
I'm being very straw manish here, but the, the which has felt an awful lot like um, you know wealthy people in the countryside um, have found a good a good a good reason to resist the visits from what they regard as um, poor uncouth urbanites. Shall I put it that way? I guess another lens on that very same debate then is is heritage and heritageization that you have over time then you have new historical practices that come in build to some degree on uh, already established ones uh, they change over time and with that then things get uh, practices get identified this is the heritage you know the the authentic way the most interesting the most correct the most uh, representative way but there are certainly not the only ones and so in a way whose stories get told mm -hmm. uh, do you do you have some examples then of of heritageization processes uh, that that are interesting here oh man um yes i mean i again i'm not uh, it's not not really a part of the book but uh but i think that, you know that you could you could point to the story i was telling there so munich climb has this has this enormous place in in British climbing culture, and it's really you know, that story I told is a kind of an, an an important part of these this kind of heritage. And of course, this you know the the narrative of mountaineering is kind of essential to its whole ethos and culture. Um, but that that sense of authenticity is also is also important. And I think there is a there is a there is a sense in which um, there's there's often a a strand of these various different um, practices in the countryside that are after an in quotes authentic experience um, and that that how that authenticity gets defined I think can be quite can be quite important I think there's also a sense though in which there are there are others in which I'm not sure that authenticity is necessarily what what's at stake or or rather there's a there's a sense in which there's a there's a, there's the ephemeral aspect of it is is treasured in quite in quite interesting ways. I'm kind of thinking of mountain biking and uh, BMX riding, the creation of uh, jumps and mountain bike tracks in the forest, which might only last. You know, it basically a lot of them last until someone comes along and destroys them. Um, but it's it, I find it really fascinating that aspect of countryside leisure because it's basically a bunch of um, it's often a bunch of middle-aged men and their sons going and going out and doing a load of digging in the forest. I mean, it, it's in, a, in many ways it's an astonishing set of practices. But it's it, but that that sense of authenticity, I think, uh, can be quite can be quite an important draw. Um, and it's yeah, the heritage input is important for some of these activities um, and less so for others. I would say. Well, thinking about authenticity, I was wondering, so, so you mentioned the story about the Munich climb and, you know, the, were these, you know, spikes, would, would it make it easier, right, for somebody to do this climb? So I was wondering what kinds of technologies are contested then um, mm. in, in this making of modern uh, mountaineering and trekking? Which of them are are thought like, oh no, you can't do that because that somehow is breaking a, a rule, an un, unwritten potential um, rule that would say, oh, that's the authentic way to do it mm, yeah, yeah. Um, versus a, a non-authentic way. Yeah, so um, so that I mean, oh, this is a this, <laughs> this is a long story. So the 
Um, really, so a lot of a lot of these practices, and I think this is something that has kind of been lost in some of the history. I mean, there's the there's a couple of great books written in German about it, but um, that actually a lot of these, so the hammering in of pitons, the construction of cables, and so on, a lot of that has a much older history than is commonly imagined. Like these these aren't this isn't stuff that was invented by errant mountain guides who are going against the climbing ethics of the time. Instead, it's it's just what is just what people living in the mountains did in order to be able to climb up cliffs. <laughs> and it has been for a long time. Um, and so a lot of that was just kind of assumed by mountain guides to be the way to do it. Um, and, that, and, 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 and because that's how it was done. Um, so really this is about, you know, and, 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 so a lot of, and so a lot of this comes about with the kind of the rhetoric of the freeing of the, um, of the mountaineer from their self-imposed immaturity, which is basically means not using a mountain guide, right? And not using mountain guide gradually also becomes not using the equipment that's associated with the mountain guide. Um, so the crampon's quite a good example here. For a long time, no mountaineer was willing to use a crampon because they were associated with mountain guides. And so they were, because they were a, a, another very old piece of equipment. Um, a guy called Oscar Eckenstein comes along, who was an, an, an English mountaineer, but had a German roots, so still a lot of connections to Germany. And he kind of redesigns the crampon, uh, turns it into a modern mountaineering artifact. And, and from then on, it's a respectable thing for mountaineers to use in order to climb. So it becomes an authentic part then of mountaineering culture. Um, some of this is also about differences between you know, for, especially for English mountaineers, some of this is about differences between amateur and professional. Um, so the, the professional mountaineers, the mountain guide, will use cheating means to, to achieve, whereas, whereas for the amateur mountaineer, um, it's um, about fair game. Um, so these, this kind of typical sport rhetoric comes into it as well. Um, and, you know, I suppose more recently, you could say something like, um, well, that you know, the authenticity thing comes in as, a, as an important part of it because the way in which the first ascent is done often establishes the um, the sense of what um, what it constitutes. But I mean, in 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 Britain, it's wrapped up in what it means. You know, in British climbing, it, it is there is a, na a national nationalism aspect to this. I think um, in which you know, often people claim we haven't got that much rock. There's plenty of rock in the UK, um, and there are there are cliffs that ha that have bolts on them. That you know, it, there is sport climbing in the UK. Um, but the kind of British climbing ethic is this kind of big, um, strange thing. And, it, you know, it's always fascinated me where it's come from. And it does seem to me that that, um, that you know, kind of episode of Munich climbing didn't necessarily establish it, but it, um, it kind of wrote in a set of rules about what came to be understood as authentic and what came to be understood as, in a sense, as kind of environmentally there's an environmental sound thing going on here, even though it's not actually that environmentally sound in that you're, you're, you're not leaving anything at the cliff. Um, and so there's this, there's this notion that you're not damaging the rock face because you're, you're not leaving anything there. Um, and it, it's, it's not actually true, but it, I think that, that aspect of it does come into it as well. So that comment, um, it, made me think of this one um, it's a lovely article in uh, the journal of design history uh, this issue that i uh, co-edited that's on uh patagonia and their i mean basically the whole design philosophy um so it's uh michelle labrague who wrote it um 
and and she looks at the mountain climber. So this is a post-war stories where they have exactly the same discussions then over what are appropriate ways of climbing, um, what is the environmental philosophy we want to express then through uh, through mountain climbing and the gear we use. I mean, in a way that the, how these these objects then express. Uh, well, the whole experience, the whole philosophy that we, we want to achieve by doing this. So that might be a piece that's worth uh, looking at if you're doing more on this. Uh, but but what I'm wondering then is like, okay, so you have this, uh, you know, you have these debates about what kind of equipment is, is appropriate, what kind of trace should you leave in nature? Mm-hmm. But, um, but how does that then align with, I would say, the the mainstreaming of these activities has to become more and more popular in a way it's the tourists dilemma that you know the more accessible the more popular particular experiences become then the less likely it is that other people will be able to experience in the same way that you know the the template was because there's too many people do do you see those discussions too in in your story oh yeah i mean there's, there's, there's loads of there's loads of classic tourism dilemma stuff um, but in it, I, I, in, 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 in kind of in quotes, um, elite mountaineering or extreme mountaineering, if you like, it, it, the, the story is a bit more interesting um, because really, in many words, what happens is that it's it's not the British that first take up this sense of increasing risk; it's the Germans, um, and that's in, that that occurs in the late nineteenth century. Basically, in the late nineteenth century, um, British mountaineers don't they? British mountaineers both refuse to use. Uh, technical means and refuse to, to undertake significant risks and the end result of that is that they stop climbing <laughs> any any significant routes um in germany um there's a move to um there are the two parallel things that happen really on the one hand there's a bunch of middle class men who um who don't really have anything to lose and basically just say risk is the thing we ought to be going at and so they just start going out and taking taking ridiculous risks and of course quite a lot of them end up dying um, and they celebrate risk so risk becomes an important part of their culture and, it, and it's about the management of risk and the and the ability to rationalize and so overcome the risks um, this becomes an, an important part of the culture of mountaineering um, and then really sort of around about kind of 18 in the 1890s but by the 1890s the a lot of the harder routes in the Alps are actually being climbed by mountain guides and they're often accompanied by women. So it's often women who now, now climb with their top guides because the top men aren't willing to climb with guides because this would be not right. right? Okay. So, so there's a period in the 1890s when a lot of the, a lot of the, top, a lot of the kind of the, what we'd now regard as kind of the harder routes, especially in the Dolomites, are actually climbed by uh, women and guides working together. Um, and the most famous one is Beatrice Thomason's ascent of the south face of the Marmolada, which is a totally groundbreaking ascent. Um, and, 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 and during this time, and, and, then, and then especially what in, in the early 20th century, increasingly then mountain guides are the ones who develop um, new forms of protection. And they, start, and they also start working with um, local um, I suppose what you would call work, work, local workers. So people who live, who work in factories, perhaps also from in, in urban places, um, and they develop different forms of, um, of mountaineering. So first they develop new types of pet of peat on the things that you, that you hammer in, that were hammered in, in Munich climb, uh, that are more reliable. 
Um, and then they then there's this invention of carabiner, which also comes about through kind of working class. And, then, and this is, a lot of this is associated with at the same time in Austria, um, the uh, universal suffrage is achieved for that same group of people. So people who uh, are beginning to state this claim. And then you get this remarkable sequence of events where there's a whole bunch of last unclimbed routes near to cities like Vienna and Munich, and they all get climbed in quite quick succession in the sort of late 1900s, so sort of late 1908, 1909-ish, um, by mountain guides from the from the Dolomites using these new technologies. And then you get famously this uh, slightly um, unique mountaineer called Paul Preuss, who then goes and climbs them without a rope and then falls off and dies in 1913. So, so you get this, you you, you get this 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 process by which um, using different forms of, of technology becomes a becomes a part of different stakes on what it mean means to be modern. But it opens the door for other groups to um, state claims in in new ways. Um, and so it in, and really in Europe, um, the use of um, technological aid and technology in order to um, climb harder routes becomes the norm um, because the people who use those those things are able to climb harder routes and not die that's the you know in the end that's what happens and those groups are often actually poorer because they're more so they because they are they're, they're inventing these things and they're, they're doing that because they have the skills and technology to do so they're you know these, these are you know these are mechanics and i mean the, the carabiner comes from a, a group of is, is supposedly from a group of firefighters in munich um, so there's you know that it, it's a complex story with very very different groups, but I think that at its core is this this sense of what do you do with risk and what is an authentic climbing experience, um, and you know th these debates you know, turn on that turn on that and its relationship to technology, um, but kind of the group that in a, in, a, in a sense kind of wins out is. Is, you know, in a sense, it's just is the group that's climbing the hardest routes. That's kind of how it's measured, and so it is this. You know, it is this kind of um, it's, it's this fascinating um, cycle in which um, basically first women and then um, mountain guides and working class mountaineers are given an opening um, within mountaineering in order to express their own dominance over the landscape. All right, our time is up, so we should uh, should wrap up this this presentation now. So thank you then to Ben Anderson for thank you very about, much. Thank, uh, you, thank you for everyone's questions. Yeah, for talking about your book, uh, Cities, Mountains, and Being Modern in Fantasy: England and Germany, which you came out with Palgrave in 2020. And also thank you to everyone who came to listen. <laughs>